Mary Ann Cotton was tired of her son, Charles Edward, so she brought him to a local workhouse and asked overseer Thomas Riley if Charles could be committed to a workhouse. Mary told him that the boy was sick and that he wouldn't live long. Although Riley saw that the boy was actually healthy and he questioned her on it, but she replied, I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the Cottons. Charles Edward Cotton died five days later. This is the story of the Black Widow. Welcome to history's biggest villains. First of all, I just want to thank everybody for coming to the video. First, I want to wish everyone a happy holidays, you know, whatever holiday you celebrate, a safe holiday season, great New Year's, all that. But without further ado, let's get into the story of Mary Ann Cotton. She was born Mary Ann Robson on October 31st of 1832 at Low Morrison County, Durham to Margaret Lonsdale and Michael Robson, who was a coal miner. Her sister Margaret was born in 1834, but she only lived a few months and her brother Robert was born in 1835. When she was eight, her parents moved the family to the County Durham village. Growing up, she was known as a girl of innocent disposition and of average intelligence and she was distinguished for her particularly clean and tidy appearance. Soon after they moved, Mary's father, Michael, fell 150 feet to his death down a mine shaft in February of 1842. His body was delivered to her mother in a sack bearing the stamp, property of the South Hetton Coal Company. Since the cottage that they lived in was tied to Michael's job, the widow and children were evicted. In 1843, her mother married George Stott, who was also a minor. At age 16, Mary Ann left the house to become a nurse and a domestic servant at the nearby village of South Hetton in the home of a man named Edward Potter. After all of his children had been sent to boarding school in Darlington over the next few years, she returned to her stepfather's home and trained as a dressmaker. In 1852, 20-year-old Mary Ann married coal miner William Mowbray and they moved to Southwest England. At the time of her trial, there were reports of four or five of their children dying young while they were living in County Durham, even though none of these deaths were registered, even though it was required to report the death of a child, but this law would not be enforced for another 20 years. The only birth that was actually recorded was their daughter, Margaret Jane, who was born in 1856. William and Mary Ann moved back to Northeast England, where William worked as a fireman aboard a steam vessel sailing out of Sunderland, then as a foreman as the Industrial Revolution was in full swing during this time. Another daughter, Isabella, was born in 1858, and then Margaret Jane suddenly died in 1860. Another daughter, also named Margaret Jane, was born in 1861, and another son, John Robert William, was born in 1863, but died the following year from gastric fever. Although the mining industry at this time was booming, it was a highly unsafe job, and Mary Ann Cotton actually convinced her husband William to take out a life insurance policy. William Mowbray suddenly died of typhus fever in January of 1865. The lives of William and their children were insured and Mary Ann collected the payout of 35 pounds on William's death. And 35 pounds in 2021 money would be 3,560 pounds. 35 pounds at this time was about half a year's wages for a minor at this time. So this was a pretty hefty sum of money that she got after his death. And she also got two pounds, five shillings for her son's death as well. Soon after Mowbray died, she moved to Seam Harbor County Durham where she struck up a relationship with Joseph Natras. During this time, her three-year-old daughter, which was the second Mary Jane, died of typhus fever 
leaving her with one child of up to nine that she had given birth to at this time. She returned to Sunderland and took up employment at the Sunderland Infirmary. She sent her surviving child, Isabella, to live with her mother. One of the patients at the infirmary was an engineer by the name of George Ward. Their relationship quickly grew and they married on August 28, 1865. He continued to suffer ill health and died on October 20th, 1866, after a long illness characterized by paralysis and intestinal problems. The cause of death recorded on his death certificate is that of cholera and typhoid fever. The attending doctor later gave evidence that Ward had been very ill, yet he had been surprised that his death was so sudden. Once again, Marianne collected insurance money in respect to her husband's death. James Robinson was a shipwright at Pallian in Sunderland, and his wife Hannah had recently died, leaving him with five children. He hired Marianne as a housekeeper or domestic help. So basically during this time, like domestic help was, I need a woman to come in my house and help me raise my child or my children because my wife has died. So this was just like an in-house helper during the time. He hired Marianne to work for him in November of 1866. A month later, when James's baby John died of gastric fever, he turned to his housekeeper for comfort and she eventually became pregnant. Then Marianne's mother, who was living in Seam Harbor at the time, became ill with hepatitis. So Marianne immediately went to her. Although her mother began to recover, she also began to complain of stomach pains. Marianne had recently stolen some items from her mother and when she noticed, her mother sharply scolded her. Margaret Lonsdale suddenly died at age 54 in the spring of 1867 only nine days after Marianne's arrival. Marianne's daughter, Isabella, was brought back to the Robinson household and soon developed severe stomach pains and died, as did two of the Robinson children, Elizabeth and James. All three children were buried in the last week of April in the first week of May of 1867. Marianne received a life insurance payment of five pounds, 10 shillings for Isabella. Then she becomes pregnant again. Due to the hostility surrounding illegitimate children at the time, and much to the dismay of his three sisters, James Robinson actually married Marianne on August 11th of 1867. Their first child, Margaret Isabella, was born that November, but she became ill and died three months later in February of 1868. Their second child, George, was born on June 18th of 1869. During this time, Robinson became kind of suspicious of his wife because she kept asking him to take out a life insurance policy. He had also discovered that she had run up debts of 60 pounds behind his back and had stolen more than $50 that she was supposed to put in the bank. Then he found that she had been forcing his older children to pawn household valuables then he threw her out, but he kept custody of their son, George, which probably saved his life. Despite all the deaths surrounding Cotton at this time, she didn't really arouse any suspicion as infant mortality rates were already high during this time, as in some places, two out of 10 newborns wouldn't make it to their first birthday. And there was also a massive cholera outbreak in the country during this time as well. After she got kicked out by Robinson, Marianne was desperate and living on the streets until she came across her friend Margaret Cotton, who introduced her to her brother Frederick, a pitman and a recent widower. He had lost two of his four children. Uh, Margaret was acting as a substitute mother for the children, Frederick Jr. and Charles. For some reason, Margaret told Marianne that she had 60 pounds, which would be 8,440 pounds in 2022. She had 60 pounds in the bank. In late March of 1870, Margaret Cotton suddenly died of an undetermined stomach ailment, leaving Marianne to console the grieving Frederick Sr. As you might guess, she became pregnant with her 12th child. Although she was still not technically divorced 
from James Robinson, her and Frederick Cotton got bigamously married on September 17th of 1870. Their son, Robert Robson Cotton, was born early in 1871. Soon after this, Marianne learned that her former boyfriend, Joseph Natras, was living 30 miles away from them and was no longer married. She rekindled the romance with him and then persuaded Frederick to move their family closer to where Natras was living. Frederick Cotton Sr. suddenly died in October of that year from typhoid and hepatitis. Insurance had been affected on his life and those of his sons. Three months after Frederick's death, Natras moved in with Marianne. She gained employment as a nurse to an excise officer named Richard Quick Mann, who was recovering from smallpox. He was a very wealthy man, and Marianne saw her next opportunity. Soon, Marianne became pregnant by him with her 13th child. Frederick Jr. died on March 10, 1872 from gastric fever, and their infant son, Robert Cotton, died two weeks later from teething and convulsions. Then in April, Joseph Natras became ill with typhoid fever and died just after revising his will in Marianne's favor. At this point, Marianne has claimed the lives of about 16 members of her family. So this is when she kind of messes up. So she brings her child, her last surviving child, Charles Edward Cotton, to the workhouse on July 7th of 1872. So if you don't know what a workhouse is, oh, you can basically sum it up as a homeless shelter where people who didn't have any money, people who were down on their luck could come and get food to eat, get a place to sleep, and maybe assistance to finding a job later. She told the overseer of this workhouse, Mr. Thomas Riley, that the boy was sick and that he wouldn't grow up. However, Thomas could tell that the boy looked very healthy. And then Marianne replied with a very scary comment. I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the cottons. Five days later, Marianne told Riley that the boy had died. Riley went to the village police and convinced the doctor to delay writing a death certificate until the circumstances could be investigated. Marianne's first visit after the death of her stepson was not to the doctor, but to the insurance office, where she discovered that no money would be paid out until a death certificate was issued. An inquest was held and the jury returned a verdict of natural causes as the doctor couldn't determine if there was any foul play in his death. Then the local newspapers latched onto the story and discovered Marianne had moved around Northern England and lost three husbands, a lover, a friend, her mother, and 11 children, all of whom had died from stomach fevers. Rumors from around town gave rise to suspicion and a subsequent scientific investigation. Dr. William Byers Kilburn, who had a seen Charles in the past, had kept samples of his body for further testing. And when he tested his stomach contents, it showed signs of arsenic, which is a colorless, odorless, and tasteless poison that is usually detected long after the death of the victim. He told the police, who then arrested Marianne. Marianne was charged with Charles Cotton's murder, although the trial was delayed after the delivery of her 13th and final child on January 7th, 1873, whom she named Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton. However, as she went through this pregnancy, the details of her previous crimes were presented to the public. A journalist went back and followed the trail of death surrounding her and brought about some damning evidence of up to 20 murders. All of these newfound details turned her into the public enemy number one. British press was very sensational around this time, especially with murder, even more especially with the murder of children, and then Cotton became the face of murder. There were even rhymes made about her. Parents 
would frighten their children by saying that she was coming if they misbehaved. Cotton's trial began on March 5th. 1873. The delay was caused by a problem in the selection of prosecution counsel. A Mr. Aspinwall was first considered, but the Attorney General Sir John Duke Coleridge chose his friend and protege Charles Russell. Russell's appointments over Aspinwall led to a question in the House of Commons, but however this was accepted and Russell was the prosecutor for this case. The Cotton case was the first of several famous poison cases that he would be a part of, including those later cases of Adelaide Bartlett and Florence Maybrick. During the trial, Marianne was actually holding her baby and actively breastfeeding in court, I guess as a means to try to draw sympathy from people, but in the end, it really didn't work. The defense in this case was handled by Thomas Campbell Foster, who argued during the trial that Charles had died from inhaling arsenic used as a dye in the green wallpaper of the cotton home. The doctor testified that there was no other powder on the same shelf in the chemist's shop as the arsenic. The chemist himself claimed that there were other powders. Campbell Foster argued that it was possible that the chemist had mistakenly used arsenic powder instead of bismuth powder, which is used to treat diarrhea, while preparing a bottle for cotton, which he had been distracted by talking to other people. The jury retired for 90 minutes before returning a guilty verdict, and Marianne Cotton was sentenced to be hanged. Although Victorian society at the time was pretty apprehensive about executing women because of the, the image they had of women during this time. They viewed women as beautiful, docile creatures. They protected men from themselves. They held the family down while the men went outside and faced the dangers of the world. And this was a very different case. The Times correspondent responded on March 20th, at, quote unquote, after conviction, the wretched woman exhibited strong emotion, but this gave place in a few hours to her habitual cold, reserved demeanor. And while she harbors a strong conviction that the royal clemency will be extended towards her, she staunchly asserts her innocence of the crime that she has been convicted of. Another report from the Derby Mercury in 1873 stated that the judge said that the prisoner seemed to have given way to the delusion that she could carry out her wicked designs without being detected. Marianne Cotton was hanged at Durham County Jail at 7.55 a.m. on March 24th. 1873 by William Calcraft. This, but, but this William Calcraft is an interesting character. He was known as the worst executioner in Britain because he had a reputation of being cruel. He would often improperly hang prisoners and he would choose not to tie the rope to the side of the neck so that the neck would break. Like, as you know, most times when people get hung, they die from the sudden jolt of their neck breaking. Marianne hung by her neck for almost three minutes before she died. A lot of people speculate that this was intentional. I did mention a nursery rhyme before. I actually found a nursery rhyme. So I'm, um, this is this is what it said. Marianne Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten. She lies in her bed with eyes wide open. Sing, sing, oh what can I sing? Mary Ann Cotton is tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air. Selling black pudding, a penny a pair. Mary Ann Cotton. She's dead and forgotten. She lies in a grave with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, oh what can we sing? Mary Ann Cotton is tied up with string. It is said that in total she killed as many as 21 people, including 12 children, three of her husbands, and her mother. But this case really changed the dynamic of how society viewed women. Like nobody really assumed that women could be serial killers and women could actually intentionally want to kill their own children. And this 
really created a big distrust from men to women as well. Like most men had a little bit of apprehension now because of what happened. They didn't think that women would be capable of doing things like this, but it was proven. But again, that is the story of the Black Widow. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this video. I hope you have a great holiday season, man. I really hope you do. But uh, thank you so much. Leave a like if you enjoyed that. Subscribe if you're new to the channel. You know what I mean? Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. I just said it again. Yeah, subscribe. I said it twice. So you should do it if you're not. <laughs> Turn on those post notification bells if you haven't already. I hope you have a great day, man. Enjoy your holiday. Be safe out here, man. But uh, anyways, I'm out. Peace.